Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Preferred Walk-Ons podcast. This is Michael McGraw, as always, joined by Michael Shutt. And just to make things a little bit more complicated, this week we have another Michael on the show. This time, happy to be joined by Mike Barber of the Richmond Times-Dispatch, covering Virginia and Virginia Tech sports. Mike, how's it going? Excellent. I think we can safely assume that somebody named Michael's going to say something dumb today. Somebody <laughs> named Michael's going to say something smart. So I think we've got all the bases covered. Yeah, exactly. So I uh, wanted to get started before we get into Virginia and Virginia Tech, since that is your wheelhouse. I want to talk a little bit about the ACC. And I feel like all eyes are on the conference now. We have... Uh, had a wild summer of realignment. The Pac-12 is disappearing, and now it feels like all the eyes of the country are on the Atlantic Coast Conference, and we've got Cal and Stanford and SMU being rumored. What are you hearing about realignment? What should ACC fans expect, and kind of what's next for our conference? Yeah, maybe the best thing the ACC has done is is not put a number in its name. Um, so it doesn't it doesn't look dumb when it loses and adds. Of course, it is the Atlantic Coast Conference, and you mentioned Stanford, Cal, SMU. And while I didn't major in geography, I, I think it's fair to say that the fact that those schools are not on the Atlantic Coast, while it's easy to joke about, it's also a major obstacle for getting any of those expansions done. Uh, the argument to add Cal and Stanford in particular is. You get into the California market, and, and it's you know one of the most populous states in the nation. And Cal, California and Texas, if you can add them, obviously there's a strength there. Uh, I think from from my sources, the way I understand it, when it came up, the thought was, okay, strength in numbers, and you get into California and maybe Texas. It makes a lot of sense. They kind of bounced it off the presidents, and the presidents said, wow, Stanford, Cal Berkeley, those are great schools. Yeah, I think we're kind of on board. And then the ADs went back and crunched the numbers and realized they're not going to make any extra money, really, because anytime you add a team, you now have to split up the, the money, the revenue a little bit finer. Now, I know there's talk of some schools being willing to not accept a share of the league revenue and those kind of things, but big picture long term, you're cutting up your pie a little bit finer. And then the other thing was the ADs ran the numbers and said, here's what it's going to cost budget-wise for all of our other sports to go out to California, to go out to Texas. And all of a sudden, what felt like it was going to be one of those realignment rumors that you hear it and the next day it's true, everybody was pumping the brakes. So I still think there's a lot of talk there. I still think if I'm Stanford, I would definitely be pushing for potentially some kind of a scheduling arrangement, maybe what Notre Dame has, where you say, look, Stanford's going to play X number of ACC games every year. You're going to be part of uh, California. You're going to have a foothold there, but we're not going to send our field hockey team to play Syracuse and, and, and our tennis team over to Boston College and those kind of things. Uh, I don't think it's dead. I, I think there's still a lot of talks ongoing. Um, you know, <laughs> made a lot of ripples when SMU sent uh, former President Bush to make a call and Stanford sent Condoleezza Rice, the former Secretary of State, to make a call and um, names like that. But the reality is those schools are desperate to find somewhere to land uh, as the Pac-12 has dissolved. The ACC needs to find a way to strengthen itself. They looked at it very seriously. Guys, I just don't think the numbers add up. One of the questions I have about this is whether even adding those schools, I mean, I think it clearly makes sense to look into that and to try to add uh, programs that are well-respected, good education, and have a history of success. But 
would that even keep Clemson and Florida State from leaving? It seems like Florida State is already like still kicking and screaming, even though the deadline has passed to leave the ACC. Like, would that even appease them at all? I don't think so. I don't think that move would do anything. The thing about Florida State and and while, yes, they come off a little bit like the whiny baby of the conference, especially when you consider that Clemson's got the same problems and the same limitations, and Clemson has been kicking Florida State's butt up and down the field for the last eight years. Um, you know, to me, it, all of that has a lot more juice if it comes from Clemson, right? Say, hey, look, we're winning at the highest level, but we can't sustain this. It's not going to last. Whereas you got Florida State, and it's like, hey, why don't you try competing with all these teams in your conference before you worry about uh, where, where you fit big picture. Now, the thing about all of this is, is Florida State is correct to say this model's not sustainable for them to compete at the highest level. I wonder, it, Cal and Stanford doesn't change anything. It, it doesn't bring in more revenue. To me, the Cal and Stanford as candidates, it's more about, hey, if Florida State and Clemson leave, how strong is the ACC? Well, it's stronger if it also has Cal and Stanford at that point. But again, you got to give Florida State some credit. What they did down in Amelia Island at the league meetings was, you know, they rattled their saber. They made a bunch of noise. And what happened? We came away with uneven revenue distribution. And Florida State and Clemson are going to be able to get a bigger share of of the money. Um, That's what they wanted. And, And I think there's things they want now either in terms of how they finally come up with the plan for an even revenue distribution. I think there's some other things out there. I think it's a lot of making noise to try to get things to be the best case scenario. Guys, I don't think anyone's leaving the ACC before 2028. Uh, to me, when you look at the grant of rights, which runs through 2036, the math doesn't add up until at least 2038, where you say, I'm going to give up this much money to leave the conference especially if you're talking about going to the SEC or the Big Ten and taking a diminished share. So I think it's a lot of saber rattling to try to get a few other things in their favor. Yeah, that's something we've definitely talked about on this show is it feels like, you know, Florida State, with all of their posturing, it still would require them to get enough other members of the ACC to agree to jump. And whereas I think your Florida State and your Clemson and arguably not many other programs beyond that in the conference have a place to land. There's a lot of schools in the ACC that don't have a clear landing spot. Does it feel to you a little bit like Jim Phillips and the ACC and and even the presidents in the eighties, have they kind of missed the boat? I mean, the big 10, the SEC, they were incredibly proactive in all of this realignment stuff. And the ACC kind of feels like they've waited until it came to them. Is it, are we still hurtling towards, even if it's not until 2028, is there like certain doom there for the conference? I don't think there's certain doom. What's interesting to me about all this is, and I don't know if they're right or wrong, but the ACC sort of resigned itself to third place, right? <laughs> you, mean, you always hear them say, okay, the SEC, the Big Ten, we got to try to catch them, but you know, we're, we're the number three league and, and that's a pretty strong place to be. Well, the Pac-12 is essentially gone. So now you're only talking about four leagues. And the Big 12 is going to renegotiate their television contract before the ACC does. So it's very feasible, guys, that in five or six years, we're talking about the ACC being the number four league, and there are only four four leagues at that point. I don't think it's imminent doom. I think they're strong enough. I think there's enough tradition in place. You, You know, I don't think Clemson deep down wants to leave the conference. Florida State, I don't think they care. They're relatively a newcomer to the ACC. I think they'll do what's best for them. But I think Florida State and Clemson both know, hey, the ACC, if it can stay viable, is their best route to the college football playoff. 
you don't have to go through all those powers in the SEC, all those powers in the Big Ten. You know, Clemson's made itself a national brand, and certainly Clemson's done a lot of great things, and, and that's a great program. But they've done a lot of great things because they had a great launching point uh, of an ACC where it was respected enough that when you bulldoze through it, you made the college football playoff. So uh, there's so many moving parts here. What are they going to do in terms of college football playoff expansion? Uh, as the SEC and Big Ten get more powerful, are they going to push for different models, uh, more outlarges that let more of their teams in? So there's so many things here at play. But I, I think the ACC is in a good enough position with its grant of rights and some of those things that it's going to be standing as other leagues kind of fall apart. And I think you're going to see either expansion or scheduling arrangements that, that keep it viable. I hope so. I, I'm i not ready for some new crazy conference as a longtime Virginia fan. I do feel like I have such a connection to the conference. It would be weird to suddenly have to follow the Big Ten or I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's so weird. I mean, I'll tell you, I'm a Rutgers grad and... You know, do I prefer Big Ten football to even the old Big East football? Of course, like Big Ten football is great, but there's no connection there for me. Maybe Penn State, but um, one, Rutgers can't compete, which makes it not particularly fun if you're an alum or a fan. Uh, but two, it's just not you know what you grew up with, and um, not that it was some kind of powerhouse, but you know Rutgers, Miami, and Rutgers, Virginia Tech, and Rutgers, Syracuse, and um, you know Rutgers, all these teams that moved over to the ACC. Those were kind of the games that, that if you were a Rutgers person, you kind of thought, okay, this is this is our lane. This is where we belong. And I, I think you're right. And, you know, in the ACC, imagine a Virginia basketball schedule that didn't include Carolina and Duke and State. It just it, – it, it doesn't feel right. And, and, you know, as a Big East guy, do I miss Big East basketball? Yeah, man, like Georgetown and Syracuse and, and those rivalries. And um, Rutgers and Seton Hall was always a lot of fun. So – I hope that the ACC keeps itself viable long enough for things to get worked out. And I do hope that, I mean, I'm a big proponent of pulling football out of the whole deal and, and saying, let's go back to the Big East and let's go back to a true ACC and have regional conferences where all the other sports compete and, and football, let them go off and pair up how they want and send the money back to their schools. And we'll do it that way. That's what I was going to get to is I feel like I'm seeing that idea of making football independent from the rest of the sports it's gaining some traction among sort of pundits and reporters and people like us we're talking about it a lot what's your sense is there momentum for that among actual decision makers with influence or is it just us fans and you know we see it as something that makes sense so is it actually a realistic thing that we could see where football on a large scale operates as basically a different organization independent from all the other sports. So I, I, when I talk to ADs and, and off the record, because they don't really like to put their name on any of this stuff, but I, I, they're, so they're almost in two separate camps right now. There's the camp that's like, wouldn't that be great, but it's just too complicated. You know, there's too much to untangle to get there. And then there's another camp that thinks it's going to be forced upon them that the Big Ten and the SEC and football is going to get so powerful that it's not going to want to be entangled with all this other stuff, and it's going to rip itself out. And then all of a sudden, all of those other sports are going to have to find a way, and that the most obvious way then is exactly what we're talking about, kind of turn back the clock, you know, jump in the DeLorean and, and go back to the, the good old days when conferences were regional and made sense. Uh, I get the sense that nobody has a problem with it but there is maybe 50% of these guys when I talk to them who just think, how are you going to do that? How are you going to take 
all of the money? And then how are you going to have any balance in your Olympic sports? Because the football schools that fare well under the new arrangement, the money they're sending back is just going to dwarf the money that other schools are getting. And is it going to create this competitive imbalance? And look, I mean, my argument for all of this is we got problems now. We'd have problems then. I think the problems under that model are a lot more manageable than the problems under this current model. So I want to get off of conference realignment and talk specifically about your beat, which is Virginia and Virginia Tech. And I think, you know, obviously, aside from the rivalry and being in state, I think a lot of people are looking at these two programs after disappointing first year appearances with their coaches. Is there any reason for optimism? I'm a Virginia fan. So, you know, feel free to emphasize all the positive things that Virginia has to look forward to. But I get the sense that there is some reason for optimism too in Virginia Tech on out of there. It's not that they're going to compete for a conference championship or anything, but what have you seen from them this spring and this summer? And what do you realistically expect from either program? Yeah, if, if we're going the optimism route, it's going to be a short episode, guys. <laughs> I'll just be honest. I'm just being honest with you. Um, but I tell you this: if you're you know looking for best case scenario for Virginia Tech, I think they could be in position to get to six wins and get to bowl eligibility. Um, why do I think that? Well, I thought defensively they were pretty good last year. Uh, they wore down in the fourth quarter. They gave up some leads. They gave up some late drives. I think a big part of that was the offense didn't hold on to the football. They weren't very deep and they wore down. I think they're a little bit deeper this year. I think they're going to be better coached this year. And when I say that, I mean, Chris Marv is taken over as the defensive play caller. That's nothing against Brent Pry as a defensive play caller. He's great at it. But Brent didn't have a great feel for the big picture of games uh, because he was so wrapped up calling the defensive plays. I think you saw it in their season finale against Liberty that the whole operation just kind of ran better and they were able to finish the game in a much more uh, professional manner and, and finish it off. I think you're going to see that. So I think you're going to see great defense. They've upgraded their skill positions. Guys, a year ago, and I, I'm not trying to be glib or knock on it, but like a year ago, they didn't have any good football players on offense. They didn't. They didn't have any playmakers. They had Caleb Smith, who was the best guy, and he wasn't terrible, but he, he should be your number two, your number three receiver. He was what the offense was built around. They did not have any playmakers. They've gone out and they've adjusted and, and adapted in the transfer portal. They brought in three new wide receivers, including Ali Jennings, who is a Richmond kid, played at Old Dominion, had the big catch that helped Old Dominion beat them a year ago. So if I'm optimistic about Virginia Tech, I think they could get to six wins in bowl eligible because they've got a little more punch on offense. And I think they're going to be good again and deeper on defense. One question I wanted to ask was about their quarterback. They had uh, Grant Wells transferred in and got all the starts with them last year with kind of middling numbers, you know, nine touchdowns, nine interceptions, under 60% completion percentage. Is he going to be the starter, even though he's, you know, back for a second year? Or should we expect Chiron Drones to get that? It seems like they've had a pretty stiff competition all summer. I think it's still Wells. Um, the problem is you watched Wells play 11 games and he wasn't very good, right? So no matter what he does in practice and no matter what he did in the in the back of your mind, you're thinking, well, geez, I gave this guy a season and he stunk, right? And he, it's not like he was a freshman. He was a guy who played well at times at Marshall. They had high hopes for him. Every time we talk to the coaches, it's he's the most accurate quarterback we've ever seen in practice. And that's great. That's a great thing to be and do. It's better than I could do. 
but he's not the most accurate quarterback on game days. And that in the back of your mind as coaches, you got to think, okay, are we headed for the same thing? Are we impressed with this guy in camp? Are we impressed with this guy in practice? And on game days, when the bullets start flying, he's going to start chucking the ball to the other team, uh, missing windows, forcing throws, making bad decisions. Maybe not, right? Maybe second year in the system, uh, the, the growth in what you see in practice is real. Um, I think he'll be the starter. I think drones will have a package that is not a gimmick. In other words, there's going to be maybe every third drive, bring him in and try to give the defense a different look. He's a great athlete. I don't know that I'm blown away with how he's throwing the football right now. But I think it's Grant Wells' kind of job to lose. I think they want to see him protect the football. They want to run the ball with a little more authority this year uh, to take pressure off the passing game. He's got better people to throw to. To me, that that's the, the smart and the safe play. Yeah, it, it feels to me like Grant Wells kind of early in the spring from everything I was seeing – it felt like he was going to be the guy and, and the longer that Chiron drones has been there, it, it feels like it's narrowing a little bit, but it's never a great vote of confidence for your returning starter. When your coach says like, I think we're, cause I, I just saw this from Brent Pry the other day. He said, we're close to making a decision, but he's kind of hoping that over the next few days, something will come. It's, it, it's almost like he's looking for a reason to not go with Wells but that's not really a vote of confidence for, for either guy. And I think it speaks to the larger program issue that Virginia tech seems to have, which is when Brent Pry came in, there was a huge deficit of talent. Like you said, does it feel like, I know they've, they've had some patchwork transfer things long-term though. Is he putting himself in a good position? Is the seat going to start getting hot for him? I know it seems early, but this is college football now. Like you don't get much time. Is he fixing that? Does it feel like they're in a better spot long-term? It's never too early to be on the hot seat. <laughs> it's it's never too <laughs> early, man. It's just the way it is. But I do think they, they're having success recruiting. They're having success in state. They're getting more of, of the top 15 guys in state. They're involved, which, I, you know, I always – I can never decide how I feel about that, right? If it's the number three player in the state and you're one of his final three teams, but you don't get them, does that have value? Well, maybe, you know, that, that, that you're at least in the conversation. But I think they're getting more high-level recruits, particularly in state. I think they're upgrading the talent. I think they're going to have better results on the field. It does feel like they have some momentum. You know, Brett keeps saying to me, and he said it to other people, this is the most positivity I've seen around a 3-8 and eight team, which – it's sort of silly, right? Because one, he hasn't been around any three and eight teams. If you go through his coaching record, it's just not a thing that's happened. Uh, but two, like, how positive are you really about? But but his point is valid. It's the players feel like they're making progress. They're doing better on the recruiting trail. They've mended a lot of fences around the state uh, that the previous staff kind of damaged and, and, and really left in a bad spot. So yeah, I, I think Brent Pry program-wise has this thing pointed in the right direction. And it's going to be a question of, you know, does he get there in time before people lose patience? Because I think Brent Pry is doing it the right way for Virginia Tech. I've always believed there's a bit of a ceiling on the Virginia Tech program. And I know everybody points to Michael Vick in 99. Like, okay. But it, to me, there's a ceiling on, on this program. And um, being a consistent 9-10 win program is a great place for them to aim to be. I think Pry's got the idea of how to do it, but can he do it fast enough to, to have his job five years from now? I think there's a similar question there about Tony Elliott. Obviously, he, you know, the way that the season ended in tragedy for UVA was very difficult. And uh, I think everybody would say that he did a great job of handling 
just the program side of that. But from a football standpoint, it, a lot of a lot of questions for this team that has an over under of three and a half entering the season. Their offense was terrible. Their special teams was terrible last year. Is there any signs of life that you could point to despite despite the way that the season ended, despite the missing talent on the roster? Is there anything that, you know, they could patch something together with this season and, you know, maybe start building for the future, even if it takes a while? Yeah, I was say no, not really. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but but in terms of building for the future, yes. You know, I, I think, you know, Tony Elliott did a bold thing a year ago. Was it a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know. But he came in and instead of trying to blend, you know, what UVA had had success with, with what he wants to do, he chucked the baby out with the bathwater. He started from scratch and he said, I want to lay the foundation, particularly offensively, for what we're going to be. The results were disastrous, right? But this year you hear a lot of, okay, it's second year in the system. Guys understand it better. We have a better idea of who can do what. The problem is this second year roster isn't as good as his first year roster. Uh, this team isn't as talented as last year, particularly on the offensive side of the football. I, I think they're going to have a rough year. I think that everything that they went through certainly should buy Tony Elliott some more time. And I do think he is, he's having great success at getting this program pointed in the direction he wants, doing the things he wants, uh, running the things he wants, uh, recruiting the way he wants, all of those things. Now, can he have success with those things fast enough, just like we said with Pry? That becomes the question. This team has a pretty good defense. Uh, I've got questions at the corner mark, cornerback position, but I think this defense has a chance to be pretty good. They're deep up front. Certainly the Chico Bennett situation it can be problematic, but they've got depth uh, and talent on the defensive line. Um, they've got some good veteran pieces in the secondary at safety. I think they can be good defensively if they can run the football, eat the clock, and, and kind of manage games like we always talk about. You know, they have a chance to be in in – three, four, five, six of these things. Uh, is that their ceiling? Yeah, I think so. You know, to me, if they get to four wins, that's pretty good. I hate the way the schedule starts for these guys. I, I hate it just based on the opponents, right? I don't love, you know, Tennessee, that's rough. JMU is a really solid week two opponent for your home opener. Up to Maryland, uh, that's an improved program. I know everybody laughs when Mike Loxley talks about, you know, oh, we'll compete for Big Ten titles. And I don't know if they're there yet, but they're certainly a formidable opponent for UVA. And then week four, you've got the ACC opener with Brendan Armstrong and State coming to Charlottesville. They could be okay this year and still open 0-4. And, and my big concern there is, guys, there's a lot of emotion in this program because of what happened last year, the tragedy, and everybody says the right things, right? We honor our former teammates by playing hard, by working hard, by having fun, by showing up. The fact that we can be here and play this game is a blessing. Those are all great sentiments, and it, it is heartwarming to hear guys realize that and say that. But you know, in the back of their mind, they want to go out and they want to win. They want to win for their teammates. They want to win for the people they lost. They want to win for themselves. They've been through hell. And I just look at that schedule and I worry about the outpouring of emotion and effort and so much put into it and a schedule that doesn't do you any favors. And if you open up one and three or oh and four, what happens then? Yeah, I don't know. So I, I, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to kind of put them in the in the context of the ACC as a as a bigger picture thing. I think in the in the words of the great Dennis Green, both of these teams are probably going to be who we thought they were. 
there is reason for some optimism. I think that they both kind of have a ceiling of bowl eligibility probably this year. But looking at the conference as a whole, uh, what other teams do you have your eye on that might surprise people? Is there a clear favorite to you? I mean, I feel like people are crowning Florida State. I'm a believer in the Seminoles this year. Others still think this has got to be Clemson's league to lose. Are there any teams out there that you think could surprise at the top end of things? And do you think there are teams that could be uh, disappointing that might underachieve? Oh, I'm sure Miami will underachieve again because that's what Miami does. And at any time <laughs> we think the U is back, they come out and lay an egg. So we're, I don't, where they picked what fifth in the preseason. So I'm sure Miami will find a way to disappoint. I, I do think it's still Clemson's uh, league to lose. And I do think that Florida State has built its program the right way to where it can compete. I still think it's Clemson and then Florida State. Now, there are other teams to me uh, that have a chance maybe more so this year than, than ever before to win a game against a Clemson or a Florida state. I think NC state has a chance to be really good. Brennan Armstrong, Robert and I, I don't love all the offensive pieces around Armstrong, but that's a nice job to scheme around. Um, I, I think they'll be okay. If they can, if they can block up front, I think Armstrong's going to find a way and Anai's going to find a way to put points on the scoreboard. I think defensively, they're still strong. I know they lost some some pieces from last year, but I really like uh, NC State. I think to me, the wild card team in, in all of this is Duke. I could see Duke falling off massively, right, and being in the bottom four. And I could see Duke being the best team in, of what's left of the Coastal. Uh, beating North Carolina, being right up there under Clemson and Florida State. To me, you know, I just don't know which way they go. And, you know, Riley Leonard was a revelation. Is he getting better and becoming uh, a star, a great quarterback, or was that a great year? And, you know, what Mike Elko did with that defense, they've got some pieces back defensively. Are they going to be a top three, four defense and, and then have a chance to be really good? So, I guess that's pretty heavy in the uh, in the Tar Heel state there, but without even mentioning Drake May in North Carolina. But yeah, I, I think if it's not Clemson or Florida State, I, I like the Wolfpack. And as far as just a kind of off the wall one, I, I think Duke Duke could go either direction, and it wouldn't surprise me. I just want to mark the clip, and I want you to ask. I want to mark this clip in my mind of Mike saying that he loves this NC State team. I just want to play that over and over again. I'm a big State fan, and I'm a big believer in this year's team. They were talking the other day about how this linebacker group actually looks better somehow in practice than the group last year, which is unbelievable to me considering what they lost. I'm I'm excited. Yeah. Yeah, I think you should be. And and like I said, I, I like the coaching staff. I like the vibe. You know, Doran and Anai are such different guys. And I went down there and I spent two days with NC State to do a story on Brennan and Robert and I and their relationship. And uh, Robert and I, when he was here at UVA, interviews lasted a minute or two. And if you didn't have a question, kind of somebody didn't jump in in the scrum to ask a question, he would literally run off. So I went down to Raleigh and I wasn't quite sure what I was going to find. And I spent two hours with Robert and I. He, he skipped out on some meetings. He had his assistants running meetings. And uh, he was just talking to me about how excited he is about what he has and what they're doing. And, you know, I, I think they are in a really good position. And, you know, it, to me, that was a team that could have won a bunch of coastal titles if they were in the coastal, right? They were just kind of saddled with being in a division that actually could play some decent football. Um, I think that program has been built up. I think there's depth. I think there's credibility. I like I like where they're positioned. One of your most recent stories was about Drake May and UNC and how he's developed 
and obviously he's one of the favorites to win the Heisman Trophy. Is is North Carolina a legitimate contender? I mean, their offense is usually great, and their defense uh, has been very underwhelming the last few years. Are they good enough defensively to actually contend, or are they just going to be another flash-in-the-pan Carolina team? I think you're pulling your punches a little bit on their defense. Their defense has stunk. I mean, their defense has been horrendous. And even Gene Chizik coming in last year didn't change it. Their defense stunk. I think they'll be better on defense. Are they going to be an elite defense? I think they're a few years away from building up to that. Uh, but they've got some athletes on that side of the ball. Um, they've added some people in the portal. I, I think they can be okay defensively. Offensively, it's going to be really interesting. Uh, Mac Brown told us in Charlotte that, hey, Drake May keeps getting better and better and better. Well, Drake May was pretty damn good last year, right? So if he keeps getting better and better and better, I like that. I have questions about his receiving core. And I know the NCA, I don't understand it, but they didn't give Tez Walker his his waiver to play a talented transfer wide receiver, um, you know, with the pieces they added, including Walker, I thought, okay, I like what they're going to put around may without him. It's a little bit less, you know, it's the old age old question of does a great quarterback need great receivers? Certainly it's awesome if you have them, right? I mean, Joe Montana with Jerry Rice and John Taylor and that, like that was really good, but Joe Montana wasn't garbage without those guys. Like he was just fine when he went to Kansas city and didn't really have those pieces. So Drake may, will he elevate this question mark receiving core? Will this question mark receiving core turn out to be pretty good and they elevate each other? I think that's where the ceiling kind of on Carolina falls is, um, you know, do they have the pieces around to do offensively what they did last year? Cause I think they will be better, but not great defensively. So Drake May seems like a really good jumping off point to this uh, this last thing, and then we'll let you get out of here. So you have a Heisman vote. So thinking about that and, and kind of looking ahead at this season, who's on your watch list? Who are the people that you're thinking, like, going into the year, these are the guys that I really think uh, have a good shot at winning this thing? Uh, is Drake May among them? Are there other ACC people too? No, yeah, I think Drake May is, you know, almost first and foremost in your mind because we talk ACC. Um, obviously, Caleb Williams, I think, is is the odds-on favorite going in, going into things. And, you know, where, where does that go? But the ACC has some really intriguing guys. Um, and it's not, it's not just Drake May, right? It's Cade Klubnick at Clemson, who we've heard over and over is, you know, the second coming here. And if we see it, on a pretty good Clemson team uh, and a Clemson team that goes to the college football playoff that elevates his profile in the Heisman race. You mentioned Florida state and, and are they for real? If they are the team that unseats Clemson and dominates the ACC, you imagine that Jordan Travis is going to be playing pretty well. Does that elevate him? I'm interested to see certainly what Sam Hartman does. Uh, you know, I know he's not really in the conference anymore, but keeping an eye on him. And uh, when you get away from the quarterback position, and I guess I didn't mention Joe Milton, which Tennessee, it'll, it'll be interesting to see what kind of a year he has. If I'm not thinking about quarterbacks, you're pretty far down my watch list. Uh, Marvin Harrison Jr. I think is a guy that, that's worth watching. Uh, the running back at Michigan, whose name now, uh, Corum, Blake Corum, um, I think is a guy worth watching. But to me, it, it starts at the quarterbacks and it starts with Caleb Williams. Do you watch that for like the whole season with like a list in mind or do you kind of get to the end of the season and kind of review the data? How, how does that actually work for you as a, as a voter? Yeah, I don't really do my research in terms of who I'm going to vote for uh, until the end. I'm a big believer in 
when I'm separating at the end, if it's not clear, right? Sometimes you go through a college season and it's pretty clear who you're voting for. But if you're getting to the end and, and you're splitting hairs, so to speak, I like to go back and, and review how they played in their biggest games, right? If you're at Ohio State, what did you do against Michigan? Uh, if you're at Clemson, what did you do against Florida State? Because to me, those are the difference. And did you lay an egg? I, I think, and it's unfair, but I think sometimes the Heisman to me is you've got to be consistently good and frequently great is, is how I look at it. And so if I'm looking at your chart of your year and your team went 11 and two and the two losses, you stunk. That really hurts your candidacy in my eyes. If your team goes 11 and two and you threw for 500 yards and four scores in each of the losses and the defense just couldn't do anything that in a sense helps your case. Like I want to see, I want you to not be the reason your team loses. And I want you to frequently be the reason your team wins um, to get my vote for the Heisman. And so at the end of the year, if it's not clear cut, a lot of the times it's going back and saying, how did they do in a loss? How did they do in their biggest, most important games? Yeah, I, I love that. I love that uh, process. And I, a lot of ACC people that are going to be in the conversation, I think, at the end of the season for the Heisman. So uh, looking forward to maybe hearing your thoughts as the season goes on. Thank you so much for joining us, Mike. Uh, we'll let you go. Make sure you read all of Mike's stuff uh, on the Richmond Times Dispatch and also want to pump up your podcast, the Teal and Barber podcast. Anything you got planned for the season for that? Yeah, we're going to be trying to come weekly with episodes there. And, and we've talked to the ACC Network about having some really good guests, uh, some of their on-air personalities, and certainly coaches and athletes. So it should be a fun season. And, you know, David has been around the ACC forever. I've been doing this now for, gosh, 21 years. Um, so, it, it, you know, we feel like we have a pretty good knowledge of the ACC, of UVA and Virginia Tech. But the reason we've been doing it for this long is it's fun. And so um, I know that's a big part of your goal. It's a big part of our goal is to just have fun talking about this stuff. And I think it's going to be a fun year, even though as we started, I think there's a ceiling on the teams we're we're most closely following here. Indeed. I'll just have to have fun with Shut as he celebrates NC State, but I'll, I'll do that's my right. best. Or maybe I put the hex on him, right? Yeah. Maybe I'm the curse of death, and, and he's going to be in the same conversation as Tech and UVA fighting for bowl eligibility. We'll see. I love it. Well, thanks. Oh, we hope not. We hope not. <laughs> Mike, thanks so much. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, guys.